You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Hello, everyone. Um, hello and welcome to M Pavilion. My name's Jen. I'm the program manager here. Um, tonight, I would like to firstly acknowledge the Yellowcoat Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yellowcoat Willem are part of the Boomerang, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and to the future. Um, tonight, we are very much delighted to invite Chunky Move to present tonight's talk on the body's architecture. I'll pass over to, probably to Vanessa um, and let her introduce the rest of the panel. Thank you. Thank you. So, on behalf of Chunky Move, welcome to M Pavilion for this talk, The Body is Architecture. We might debate whether that's the right title for this evening, but. We'll get on to that. Um, my name's Vanessa Bird. I'm a practising architect with Bird Delacour Architects in Southbank. I'm also a national councillor at the Institute of Architects. And I've been invited here because I'm part of the dancing architects who don't dance. But we are um, a group that was um, formed in 2014 by Ian McDougall and Roger Wood to crowdfund... Um, the commissioning of dance work for the Melbourne Festival. Um, I'm now going to ask my fellow panellists to quickly introduce themselves and then we're going to try and keep it relatively formal, informal, as a sort of... <laughs> informal, I've just changed it all. As a conversation between the five of us, between, you know, an architect, an artist and three choreographer dancers. So we might start with Ian. Hi. Um, I guess I'm, I'm here because I guess my background is as a visual artist working with homes and looking at, I guess, architecture through the sort of lens of this sort of familiar object of the home. Um, and a lot of my work uh, up until recently has been primarily only dealing with uh, architecture, photography, uh, architectural interventions, but never with people. And so in the last three years, I've been working on a collaboration with uh, Anouk van Dyck at uh, Chunky Move, uh, which we've just finished. And it was the first time I've ever had any experience working with dancers, the first time I've ever worked with performers and a choreographer to try and think about how could I translate that uh, that visual art practice into dance, into performance, and how can we start using and working with the body to, uh, I guess, start thinking about that space differently. And so I guess I'm, I'm definitely the, the newest person to performance and movement and, and the body, uh, but I'm very familiar with working with architecture as an artist. Um, my name's Sarah Aiken. I'm a dancer and a choreographer working in Melbourne. Um, I work quite closely with Rebecca, um, we make work together as a collaborative kind of relationship, um, but we also both make works independently of that. My work has uh, kind of when I started making work, I was really working with objects in a in a very direct way, um, dealing with my relationship to subject object, um, and then in the last couple of years, I've been working with repurpose technologies a little and looking at scale, um, considering how we look at ourselves in relation to... Hmm. Got to learn to talk about my work. This is the thing about dance. Um, 
We yep. were just saying that, weren't we? <laughs> it's hard when you have to start using words to describe something that is meant to be visual or Yeah, and I think that's, like, the best thing about dance is that it's, like, there are things that are very anchored in, in language and ideas and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that is kind of inarticulable. inarticulable. Um, but, yeah, my work is dealing with scale and looking at the body as a surface for microscopic life and then zooming out and looking at bodies on a, on a kind of earth magnitude scale. Um, the work I make with, with Rebecca has a couple of different projects. I'll leave some for her to talk with. Um, one of which is a, is a participatory performance called Deep Soulful Sweats. We did one here a couple of weeks ago, um, which is a really sort of shifting project which involves like the audience being the performer. And we work with sight, but I don't think we'd call it site specific because it never, it's never the same in any site. Yeah. Hello, um, my name's Diane Butterworth. I'm a um, dancer and choreographer, um, which I've been doing for 25 years. Um, I find it easier to move than to talk. Um, and I think the things that I'm interested in with dancing or why I do it is because it disappears um, and it's, it, it can do things that other forms can't do. Um, I'm a studio artist at Gertrude Contemporary as well, um, which I've been there for two years in South Preston. I feel like a bit of an outsider there in some ways. And I suppose I use, this is kind of stating the obvious, I use space in my work in, in different ways. That's all. Hi, I'm Rebecca Jensen. Um, I am a dancer and a choreographer, dancer interpret, maybe, you could also say. Um, I feel very influenced by my work as a dancer in my choreography. And uh, I, I look at many things when making work, but one thing that's been quite uh, prominent recently is uh, creating quite complex improvisational systems to be enacted by groups. So um, working to create systems that uh, kind of rely on performers to make a lot of choices live and determine determine how they navigate the system that has been created, um, which creates particular qualities of performance that are specific to the work, depending on the people in the work, um, prioritising transition, responsibility, cooperation, compromise, etc. <laughs> Um, I also make work with Sarah. Um, yeah, we have this project, Deep Soft Sweats, uh, which is just ongoing and forever changing and forever happening at different sites. Uh, I, had I had something to say about site when you said something about site, but I've forgotten now what it was. It's not site-specific, but it's specific to site. But it's not about the site. It's about the bodies. It's about the people. Um, we also make shows together. <laughs> For kind in of the more theatre. Yeah, theatres, <laughs> theatres. Um, and that work uh, is pretty maximalist and 
in a way, I would almost say formless, or it's been described as formally reckless. Um, yeah, we steal a lot. We, like, smash <laughs> a lot of physicalities into our bodies and, and deal with that. Like, there's a lot of dealing with information that we input, like yeah. physical information. And perhaps another way to describe that is thinking of the body as a vessel or a host. Or somehow collage. Yeah, true. Or a collage. <laughs> or collaged. <laughs> I'm talking complexity, <laughs> anyway. Like, a lot of complexity. <laughs> yes. Maybe I'll stop there. It's a bit of an intro. Okay, so maybe if we start to talk about the similarities, I guess. I mean, we can drop this whole thing of the body as architecture if you don't think that sort of suits. But I think, but architecture and dance or choreography, if that's the better term, um, are creative disciplines that do share a number of things. They've got a lot of differences, but there's areas that are creatively quite similar. I mean, you could say that in choreography, it's about the movement of the body through space over time. And in architecture, you, you guide and ex the body experiences a space through time, guided or not by the architect. Um, and they both, both disciplines deal very um, directly with space and with the body. Um, I think that, and you know, and also with scale, one thing that I was really quite interested in was um, the discussion you started to have about scale. Because you don't often hear dancers, well, I don't often hear dancers talk about scale. And scale is something, the scale of the body is so embedded in the everyday practice of architecture. It's embedded in, without thinking, in your architectural training, planning, you know, doing a plan, um, designing where the windows are, where the benches are, you know, where the stairs are, is so directly related to the body, the scale of the body. The history of architecture, the very earliest writings on architecture by Vitruvius in 1 BC are all about the proportions of the body and how this relates. We see that in the Renaissance through Alberti and then in modernism through Le Corbusier's modular man. And in, so the body is, and the scale of the body is really embedded into architecture. And in architecture that sort of manifests itself in a couple of different ways. And one's relatively poetic and the other one is very prosaic. So on the poetic side, it's probably best described by, I mean, it wasn't invented by Frank Lloyd Wright, it's happened since prehistoric time, but he called this principle um, compression and release. And so you proceed, so before a big grand space, you have a very tight constricted space. So you enter into the constricted space and so um, when you step into the light-filled larger space, you have a feeling of, of awe. Um, and you can, you know, see that in a cathedral or in a state library or even in a 19th century bank, you know, you, where you meant to... Definitely in a theatre. Yes, and in a theatre, that's right. So, you know, the compressed space gives you that, um, that apprehension or that expectation 
before the reveal of, of the ore. So you use, you know, the compression and the, and the release of space. So that's, you know, one technique that's very basic and, you know, every architect would understand how to use that. And then the very prosaic level is law, basically. You know, like we have uh, a national construction code, we have building regulations, we have regulated heights of handrails which must be one metre off the ground. We have a, you know, a handrail that must be 50 metres from a wall and allow for the hand to hold it continuously through the length without touching anything. We have a regulated height of a riser, a step, and the depth of a tread. We have a, you know, no hole in a balustrade can be larger than 125 millimetres, you know, a sphere of 125 millimetres, which is the size of a baby's head. So you can't pass that through or your stair design will fail. So, you know, everything... So in that respect, um, we're thinking about the body and the proportions of the body all the time. You have to be able to sit on the chair, you have to be able to reach the shelves. You know, so everything that we do is related in either a really prosaic, you know, way. You have to see out the window, you have to sit on the toilet, you know. It's all related to, <laughs> to the body. Um, I think I think we were sort of talking about it earlier. I think that um, a lot of that is is predicated on predictable movement of a human through those spaces as well. And I think one of the things that was really uh, interesting and Anouk was really patient with me is like as soon as you go into a house and so we started doing research with with dancers in different spaces, as soon as someone runs down a hallway or because dance. Um, the, you know, the extremity of dance is looking at the extension of movement and how far movement can go and what is the possibility of human movement. And as soon as you start seeing a body move in random and unpredictable ways and bouncing against walls, suddenly a hallway is really claustrophobic and suddenly movement is really dance, like, is really dangerous and, um, and it really changes how you understand stairs, how you understand a ceiling height, how you understand all that sort of very rigid, predictable repetitive aspects of architecture as well, yeah. I think. And the assumptions that, that all of that code is built on the, kind, the way that we use our bodies and the kinds of bodies that use the spaces as well. And that in the Windsor Hotel work, I mean, the, obviously the work that you produce in a room... <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, like that is very um, restricted by that space. Totally, but at the same time, um, being used to working in the theatre, when you speak of all of these restrictions, these laws, like we have to deal with them like all the time when making work. And, and yeah, the handrail must be a certain height. It must stick out. It must get in the way of the choreography. All of this actually in the Windsor Hotel, um, perhaps working in more of a visual art context uh, in Gertrude Contemporary's performance room 301 at the Windsor Hotel, spring 1883. Um, <laughs> 2016. 2016. Deanne Butterworth also performed a different way. You can see work. it online too. You I can see it, it online. <laughs> but there, there was actually no restrictions and I wasn't held accountable for how I decided to use that space and how we decided to use that space, like giving agency to all the performers Sarah was performing in that work yeah. as it unfolded live. And I feel like sometimes with the restriction... I mean, that was a restricted space in a way in terms of it being a much smaller space than what we might normally work in. But that actually um, enabled 
different possibilities to um, to come up and different ways of thinking about work as well. And almost through the having less space to work in, there were different ideas which evolved and um, maybe there was more experimentation. I feel like watching your work, there was. <laughs> I found, you well, know, the experimentation was, was really in relation to the space yeah. rather than in relation to the... Like the body or the material. Yeah, and a playfulness with it as well, which um, maybe couldn't have come out of another situation. So maybe the architecture of that room and the, the premise of this thing of only happening one, maybe once or twice, I don't remember. Yeah, twice, once for an hour and once for five hours. Yeah, that, that really um, shifted outcome in a way. I don't really like using that word, but... Something was made which couldn't be repeated. So if so, if you're if you're making a work in a which I call like the, the black cube, and if black you're making black box, sorry, white cube, the white cube, <laughs> black box. Um, I don't remember the last time I made a work for a black box. Well, this not my question: Is are you are you using a room with existing uh, like a like a hotel room? Are you using that as a departure point for movement as a starting point versus the presumed neutrality of the black cube box box black box the maybe black the psychology of that space not necessarily the which is also the architecture of the space is it <laughs> do you are you yes. talking about the history of the space the history of the the space or, or what what a hotel room is yeah so in your work you've often, you've said that you are interested in the history of space yeah so how does that impact on on the practice? Um, I feel like a lot of the time uh, history of the space um, so a lot of the time I use the space I find it hard to orient myself in space <laughs> so I have to have a marking point <laughs> Like I have to know where the door is or something. <laughs> so um, often if I'm working in one studio, say at Gertrude Contemporary, the studio there, there's a door at one end, there's an alcove. But when I made a work in that space and then transferred it to Gertrude Glasshouse, I had to tape what was on the dimensions of the studio space to Gertrude Glasshouse to kind of have this history of this one studio space and then it transferred into the next space because I felt like I didn't, I wasn't quite ready to leave the studio space and for this to become only a space where um, it was still in a, it was the work which was being performed to the public was still in a state of, it was in flux and it was in process so I had to kind of acknowledge this studio space. What did you ask? History. <laughs> yeah, do you research the history of the spaces you're working in? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I had a residency at Boyd Studio, South Bank, and I did, yeah, I did start researching the space, but then I also ended up going in circles about, well, how much is that really informing what I'm interested in? And then actually the history is collected or evident in my body already, so maybe that's even though I'm interested in the history of the space, I, I'm also interested and it's, I can't deny the history of the body. 
I think, yeah, in relation to that and also this idea of making work for the black box is like um, this idea of the black box is a neutral space and also the idea of like bringing the rehearsal space into the performance space. I think the black box is a, um, a false neutral. There is no neutral black box because you're always working and performing within the context you're showing work in. And I think this is something that the touring market kind of pretends isn't there, that work is different if you're in a different place, regardless of what the room you're in looks like. So, yeah, like something about bringing the rehearsal space in, you don't necessarily leave behind the the locality of where something's made. And that's always going to sit differently, no matter where you are. And in the last kind of few years, the dance in Melbourne has really started to um, be able to access a, a bigger touring market, which is really exciting and really great because it gives people so much more opportunity to show their work. But it also, I think, we can't ignore the fact that that idea of neutrality favours a particular kind of uh, way of making work and, and, and it produces a particular kind of work and it validates a particular kind of work. And I think that pretending we're not working in particular spaces isn't always... Yeah, I think it's really interesting to like bring the work the spaces you're working with into the work that you're performing rather than letting them sort of disappear. And I think that idea of, you know, taping the space and being like the history of making the work is as important as putting it somewhere else and you can't dismiss that history. Yeah, it's like a, um, giving credit to the process as well as the product and, yeah. Because otherwise you are just making product. the hierarchy between the two things. Yeah. Mm. So when you guys make, do you think about movement first or context of it? So if it's changing contexts, then is it purely about movement and then adapting it for each context? You don't necessarily know the future of it when you start. Right. Yeah, often not. Maybe that's a question for you though, isn't it? Like what's the, with your work, <coughs> your suburban series, there's the, um, you know, the the work that's in the gallery space, the finished photographed pieces, and then there's the work as it is on site and experienced bodily by the community and by whoever else comes to see the work as it is on site. You know, what, how do you feel um, about the difference, the different sort of psychological impacts, I suppose, of, of the site work and then when it's taken to the gallery? Yeah, I think there's there's two very different moments and two very different experiences. So one is working on site with a home that has its own history and a community and that community that would understand the history of that home and the context of that neighbourhood and also collaborating with and working with that community to make the work, to then photograph it, to then shut down the street and make a work. And so the experience of um, that neighbourhood or that community seeing the work, um, understanding the specificity of that home is a really different experience to then me taking that photograph and showing it on the other side of the world in a white cube gallery. Um, and I think about them uh, as connected but different experiences. So, um, you know, there's, there's the experience of, of the home and the, the kind of archetypal suburban home as a psychological symbol that if you 
paint a giant X on it, that if you cut holes in it and if you light it um, and show it without uh, much reference to its context other than the street in a photograph, then people will react to that as a universal symbol and their relationship to that. Um, but that's not to say that someone who knows that house and knows that street and saw that work being made would have that universal experience but also an experience of it that relates directly to the, the context and history of that space as well. And I don't... Um, I think that's the thing about as an artist leaving the studio and working in public space and working with communities is that you relinquish a level of control as to what you can actually make and how people can react to the work as well. And so... You, um, and also there's environmental changes and unpredictable things happen. So it's about um, staying open to that process. And um, you know, I think one thing, you know, it's, a, it's the, the, white, the white gallery is it becomes the, this sort of absolute space and, this, um, and the, a finished photograph or a finished art film is absolute and an experience of a work site-specific in a street reacting against a piece of architecture that that community and only that community see um, is sort of a fleeting experience, and so there's two. I think that's there's separate and connected really things. Similar about that to what you're saying about your work. Yeah, it? yeah. I guess it's about yeah how to how maybe maybe it's more in dance. I can only speak from dance, but maybe it's more about the economy of the performing arts valuing both things equally. Because it's so, yeah, it's so easy to be like, oh, the one that has the, the life outside of the origin is exciting and flashy and has all the credentials. But actually, they're both, they both have value and how to, yeah, allow space for things that, that don't have the potential to leave their context to be valued, even though their audience isn't as wide. Um, just when you were speaking, talking about making work, um, in public spaces and not being able to kind of determine or, yeah, no, know exactly how people might respond to instruction or um, some kind of setup that you've organised uh, made me think a lot about this participatory project. We have Deep Soul Sweats um, and how much time we spend speculating how people will respond to <laughs> instructions whether those instructions are verbal instructions or they're kind of energetic instructions or they're like sort of just making actions with your body to direct people in space. Or just spatial situations as well. Totally, like where people will group, where people will feel comfortable to sit down, whether people would want to wear shoes, um, all of this kind of logistical uh, stuff that determines And very much respond. in relation to like the scale of the body, like how many people will fit laying down here? How long does it take 500 people to go through a doorway? Like, <laughs> we spend a lot of time speculating on these very kind of spatial human scale things. Which I can imagine can, it was, is probably quite a strong connection to... Maybe we should well, talk to architects yes, more. <laughs> Maybe we should work with architects. There's a big thick book called Nerfit's Data for Architects where all that is written down. Okay, we'll talk later. <laughs> have just solved a lot of problems for us. <laughs> but on that scale thing, you know, one, um, and I probably have completely the wrong language to ask you about this, but, um, you know, we, we can sort of, th we often think about the singular person moving through space. In a lot of your work, it seems like there's moments 
um, where there's, this, there's these masses of bodies that are moving together. So it's sort of like a, a mass with multiple limbs and if there's dark lighting or whatever, you can't necessarily see um, the specific bodies within it. There's a movement that really confuses that whole idea of scale where you're creating mm. a different, a completely different scaled object in the space. I think that to me is really interesting. Yeah, it's like the edges of the individual body are, uh, get less relevant. I think, yeah, I, I first started working with scale just purely out of like existential crisis. I was like, what's the point of doing anything? I'm like really insignificant. Um, but <laughs> which is still true. Um, but I think the more I started working with trying to expand and contract myself, the more interested I got in like the, the physical properties of, of the body and of being very big and very small, depending on where you're looking from. And I think that the idea of, of zooming out and seeing yourself as kind of like an indistinguishable one of you know, how many people are there on the planet now? I don't even know. A lot. And and that in terms of, like, history and ecology and, like, generations rolling over and over and, and actually just, like, you lose sight of yourself in that, which is, I mean, on a, on a different scale from a mass of bodies moving together. But something about losing sense of the edges of yourself and therefore valuing things less from the perspective of just one, I think. I always find really interesting. I think that's something in Beck's work um, that she manages to kind of navigate really well by setting up these frameworks for people to to navigate as a group of people and for people's perceptions of the situation, which are never going to be the same, to kind of sit on top of each other. And is, it's your work, isn't it, that's set with the, where you have the tubes, yeah. long tubes <laughs> attached to your... Arms or the dancers have the long tubes attached yeah. to their yeah. arms and legs, which completely distort the size of the body in the in the space. I mean, I think the other thing that that's been sort of really contentious since the modernist period about the body is that the body was the white six foot tall man, and the Cavusian model is that mm. now we at least deal with um, the elderly body, the disabled body, the child. You know, women, we don't ask women with pushes to come to the town hall for a vaccination where there's just a flight of steps and they can't get in. Yeah, know. yeah. There's been a, you know, a consideration of, of what... The complexity of human bodies, then they're not the same. Yeah. And I think that's interesting in relation to dance because, like, in, in most of the world, it has been, you know, in the Western world, the, the kind of standard human unit has been a male body but I think in dance it's actually a white female body um, because of the history of ballet and of um, yeah this kind of like the dancer is the muse this like replicable replaceable um, white female body and I think that's it's a slight variation on the on the rest of western culture which is no better but I do think it's kind of interesting the yeah that that in dance but are you messing with all of that in that work where you've extended your arm, or extended the arms and legs of everybody with the tubes? I mean, they're beautiful photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that was quite a... I made that work quite a few years ago and after I made it, I was kind of like, wow, I have some sort of inferiority complex and I'm trying to make myself bigger. And that has kind of actually like 
but a whole bunch of works about making myself bigger. I don't know. Maybe I should just like see a shrink. But um, but yeah, it is something about like how to add things to my form that that give me more power, um, that make me take up more space, that make me like as substantial as the things around me because I feel like I am kind of replaceable. Um, and and the more I've worked with these ideas, the more I've realised it's actually like it's fine that I'm replaceable and it's not like my identity as an artist isn't the thing that's important. Um, and I think that's something that, yeah. I don't know. Is it fine that you're replaceable? I don't, I was well, yeah, because there's like billions of humans yeah. and like I'm not that special. But, <laughs> yeah, no, you are. But anyway, um, <laughs> Thanks, but it's Dan. also I was thinking the work that I've been involved in in other people's work, my work, your work, other choreographers' work, that it's the things that come out are very specific to each person. So the work wouldn't be the same if it wasn't Sarah Aiken in... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I think I think that, that tension is, is really interesting. I mean, I, I made a work a couple of years ago called Sarah Aiken, which was, like, really directly dealing with this... Um, this I uh, kind of a lot of things, but like an idea that the artist's ident not not necessarily identity, but like brand is is more important than sort of anything else, um, and the economy of behind the arts, and yeah, it is like of course like the thing that I bring is going to be different to to what Rebecca brings, even though people get us confused all the time, like. But when you zoom out and you look at, at the scale of, like, time rolling on and on and on, m no matter how big my impact is, it's going to be, like, tiny. And that's, like, good, you know, because it's not all about individuals. It is a more about, like, a collective experience and the fact that, like, that information will pass on to someone else and they'll morph it and they'll take it somewhere else and they'll, like, confuse it and get it tangled up with something else and it will become, you know, it's, like, it's not about me and my ego, but that doesn't mean it's not specific. I think that's different. Yeah. Do you want to talk about how you're using the, the blurring the edges of the body with the groups of um, as well? Sure, sure. Um, so perhaps one work to talk about would be Deep Sea Dancers, which was um, a work for a group. I think there were 16 of us in the end, um, which is quite a feat. I must say, <laughs> it, like to actually manage to pay 16 artists, although it wasn't good pay, I tried my best to sort of devise some sort of system where people could be paid by the hour, um, sort of as a response to this idea that, yeah, we must be making solo works that are tourable for the black box, which is, was sort of when I was really feeling that, that kind of, I guess, claustrophobia around that time. Um, and I also just wanted to create a space where, yeah, I could work with peers and share, we could generate things together as a collective. And I don't know how successful that was actually in hindsight. But anyway, to your point. Um, so blurring the edges of yourself. Um, yeah, as Sarah was speaking, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, maybe I was trying to just disseminate myself into this group of 16 people <laughs> through blurring the edges of me. But um, so the whole work was improvised and it was basically a series of scores uh, that we were, were 
organized in an order that we worked through as a collective. And all of the scores uh, had some component of uh, working collectively and navigating something quite unknown as it evolved. And that unknownness had several different, it had different scales. Like sometimes it was quite, quite small. Like it was sort of obvious that would produce a very particular kind of physicality because we had rehearsed it over and over, although it was different every time. Um, but performing that work, I performed in it as well. A lot of the scores uh, worked in this, this place, which I, I like to call sort of the point of difference between bodies. So Sarah and I are dancing together. Just say we're doing like a, we're doing a mirroring exercise. <laughs> but whatever's happening, uh, it's, we're never going to be exactly the same. And no one's leading, no one's following. Something that's happening between us <laughs> is particular to the two of us. And it's something about this space here. Very good. <laughs> but there's no right or wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's an example of one way of working. And another thing we were doing was working a lot with memory. Um, memory, memory and memory retrieval in relation to each other. <laughs> it's quite hard to describe. It's quite intricate, really. Um, which is also nice to reflect upon. Often, as Sarah was saying at the very beginning, you find, um, yeah, dancers, we don't, we don't talk enough about our practice, perhaps, or the intricacies of our practice. Maybe that's why it's so good. <laughs> it's not, like, it's not about not talking enough. It's just a different mode. Sorry, interrupt. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll go with that. Um, dancers often apologise for dance, and I'm just, like, sick of it. Yeah, yeah, this was a big conversation we were having, actually. We're like, the body is architecture. Or what is the name of this talk again? <laughs> the body is, is it the body is architecture? The body as architecture. I was really confused by it. We were all confused by it, the, the, the dance cohort. And perhaps all of us, a little bit. And we thought, like, the, the, body, the body is architecture. Why? Why does the body have to be architecture? The body is the body. Dance is dance. But when I do think about the architecture of the body, I think about my skeleton and maintenance, <laughs> efficiency. I'm like, Joint I've got to get pain. this architecture. <laughs> got to get this architecture sustainable. <laughs> Need it for the rest of my life. Yeah. At I least it's not... The word architect gets used really badly. I was just saying to Ian, you know, you just cringe when you hear people saying, oh, it's, it's, some, it is a terrible idea, you know, and that person was the architect of um, <laughs> incentivization or some stupid word or the architect of the Holocaust or, you know, you just think... Grand designer. Sake, you know, do we have to use that <laughs> word? Yeah, it's interesting when uh, your thing becomes a metaphor for something else. Like, uh, you know, people say they're dancing around the topic. You're like, you, no, they're not. They're just avoiding it. It's not nothing to do with dance. <laughs> Leave dance out of it. Well, no one's saying the choreographer of the Holocaust. <laughs> they could... <laughs> They could, I guess. Uh, but Ian, um, in your your work, the Holocaust. I mean, in in the work. The title let's, for let's, a work. Let's talk about the work you're um, doing with Chunky Move, because again, um, you know, from the couple of pictures I've seen, it looks like um, there's bodies are operating together in in groups with, yep. with structure. But what's been your sort of process and, and 
you know, uh, and the conversations you've had with Anouk about um, that work. And, and what's really been the difference for you, I suppose, in changing your mode from working within the visual arts to suddenly working with dancers and with the body? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing was um, way, a lot more challenging than, than I thought. And I had a very close friend um, who works in performance who said, because you're a visual artist, you're going to try and create a object and you're going to try and take something away that you can reshow and reshow and reshow and change the context. And performance is performance. It's something that happens within a set period of time and it's successful or unsuccessful within that period of time. And as an artist, I'm like, but can I take a photo of that? Can I do, how, can I, how can this live on? And it's, it's actually about creating an a, a experience within duration, I think. And where Anouk and I settled, we, we kind of worked with physical research and dances in homes and against architecture. And then I started building sections of house frames and bringing them into the Chunky Move studio. And we started picking up house beams and roofing beams and rebuilding sections of houses and wall sections that we then started pulling apart. And then really we were sort of trying to find this part of like, well, would we do something in a real home? Would it be something that is based on part of a home or a sculpture? And we kept working. Over a few years we kept having these, um, really lucky to have these um, periods of development with performers and really open experimentation with just in incredible, incredible dancers. And um, what we kept coming back to was this, the beam, the wooden beam is this, like this sort of foundational element of construction and how you build space. So the most interesting improvisations and pieces we got were from dancers just working with these 45 by 90 timber beams. And then I'd be making sculptures with um, burnt wood um, I've also set houses on fire for my projects before um, and I've also been drawing a lot with charcoal as well. A lot of my work starts from drawing and so we started talking about what, where the work could sit in a gallery, whether it would sit as a performance, um, whether it could be a film, whether it could be sculpture or drawing and we started thinking about um, dancers as sculptors and, and how you kind of start building spaces with these beams and constructing spaces and instead of me building a big sculpture that becomes a kind of set, whether it can come out of the performance and out of provocations with the, with the performers. And so we, um, uh, one of the, the big outcomes from it was a film that we shot at the end of last year, which was um, uh, a sort of nine by nine meter canvas in a space, pre pristine white canvas with um, 12 burnt timber beams and nine performers and it was a kind of uh, filmed uh, sort of three, four hour durational work that kind of creates this drawing on the ground and this performance that's been filmed. So it'll, um, ultimately we're still in post-production but ultimately be a, um, something that sits between an exhibition, a uh, re-showing these canvases as drawings and as works that are both kind of drawings but also strangely these sort of durational charcoal documentations of performance and so you can see hands and movement and the beam scraping against it. Um, again, it's probably a lot easier to show than talk about it right now. Um, and and this and a film work as well that be that can be shown in a, a gallery context and and also something that a performance that can be reworked in a gallery or reworked in different spaces. So we kind of have these um, 
I guess, instructions so this performance can keep happening and be um, re-performed in different places. Um, but we're still, still finishing it up, so still figuring it out. So there's a live, there could be a live component to it as well? Yeah, absolutely. We're still, I mean, it's still, um, we're still resolving exactly what it is, but it's, um, there's definitely um, a really, really beautiful film that I'm really proud of and I think it's going to be really exciting. I mean, maybe we should talk about the difference between choreography and dance. <laughs> <laughs> um, just thinking about what Ian's saying, you know, he's... Uh, was I using it interchangeably? I'm not sure. No, <laughs> no. It's really more um, just in relation to working with the, with the dancers and with the body. You know, the role, the, the relationship... You, I was thinking just about the, the two relationships that you probably have, you know, one with the choreographer and others and the other with the dancers. And if we're talking about the body moving through space, if we come back to this idea... Um, Yes, it's the dancer who moves through space, but it's the choreographer who charts the way. Do you... I mean, you were saying earlier that people often confuse the two terms or get it wrong or something. Do you want to talk about that or...? Where to start? <laughs> um, the... Well, I yeah, suppose what's the difference between being... How do you feel about being in a piece, being the dancer to the, being the choreographer and then the relationship that you have to the space yeah. as either of those? I feel like the works... I can only speak from my own perspective, but I feel like the works that I'm involved in with other choreographers certainly ask me to contribute a great deal to the choreography. So... And I suppose when I work with other people, I do make a, I do make a lot of solo work. But when I work with other people, I also um, invite the participants to actually contribute a great deal to the work. So even though they're dancing in the work, they're actually um, they're making they're helping make the work as well. Um, that's not very clear. A, in terms of a definition of dance and choreography, but um, I mean, it comes through particular instructions which the choreographer might give, which can be very simple physical instructions or particular ideas from text or sound, even. Um, I know early on, I'll just say this, early, very in the introduction, you were talking about um, the human in the human in architecture and always from the human scale. And I had... Um, sometimes I think about what, the, what does the space tell you to do or how... Yeah, what does the space kind of invite you to do as a dancer and or even as a choreographer and... Um, yeah, maybe that's the setup which happens in lots of works I've been involved in. Like, what is the situation inviting you to do? And either you take a risk and you do it, or you don't do it, and 
something happens from that situation. And I, I really um, wanted to run through the space and around and back around and there and back because I felt like that's what the space was telling me to do. But I was like, no, you're talking. You can't do that. Sit down. <laughs> so that didn't answer. Just then? No, early on in the introduction when, yeah. But I didn't. I was restrained. Yeah, I think that, like, you know, the dance choreography binary is, like, a bit of an illusion um, because there always is some element of choreography in being a dancer. And, I mean, I always am in my work, so I'm always dancing my choreography. But um, there's, I guess, the... You don't need to have dance to have choreography. Um, you can choreograph. You don't need to have choreography everything. to have dance. To have dance, yeah. Um, but there's something about agency that is the distinguisher, I guess. Like, as a choreographer, you are making choices. Now you are as a dancer as well. I don't know. <laughs> I think one of, the, one of the things I was quite naively going into it is I thought working on this, a choreographer was like, Madame who would yell instructions at her dancers and know exactly what she wanted and actually going in there and understanding how insanely collaborative and open the process is and there's provocations and, you know, a lot of the, the dancers will take big risks and really try things out and be really bold and make big mistakes and, and do things that don't work but it, it, that, that process builds tiny little pieces that start to chip away and you start to see something come to shape out of that and that really open collaborative process is something that was really um, incredible to see. I mean, I work with architecture and architecture doesn't talk back to you. It doesn't give you ideas. It, you don't really provoke it in a way that it's that. The people so, who interact with it might though. Absolutely, absolutely, but not in... A bit late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really late. But it's, yeah, and I, I found that was, um, you know, I and mean, I've taken that back into my art practice and way of thinking about work and collaborating with people and being... Um, you know, maybe it's the same thing with the, you know, as an, as, an, as an artist, people always talk about this sort of very outdated renaissance idea of the auteur where you are meant to be this singular genius in the yeah. studio who throws paint around, but really you're the visible peak of a very big iceberg of people who are holding uh, you up yeah, and absolutely. collaborating and giving you feedback. And Which I think is what I'm trying to say when I mean I'm insignificant. Like I don't right. actually think that it's just that I'm just as important as like every single person around me and I think that's the same idea. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I, I mean, the projects I do, I'd be... I, producers, collaborators, film technicians, like incredible people around me that I could never make the work that I make without that many people in that feedback loop as well. And I think it's really exciting to see it in such a um, dynamic and direct way with choreographer to dancer and back and how our work is built that way. But I think, uh, yeah, a lot of choreographers work very differently also. Like there are some that, experience, yeah. <laughs> some that kind of <laughs> clearly provide... Like, they have an overall vision. They've kind of decided what the work is going to be, but they, they work with certain people that they know are going to um, perhaps create all of the movement content through, um, we call it, like, task-based generation. So they'll go and say, oh, I, I need something very sort of circular around here that's kind of emotive. And they'll send the dancers off, and the dancers will go away for, like, 20 minutes and then come back with material, and the choreographer will be like, great, put that there. So they're kind of like organised Or change things. it like this. Do it change faster. It like this. Yeah, do it like you're drunk. Do it, you know, like, I don't know. There's, there's choreographers like that and there's others that, yeah, sort of arrive with a text and say, okay, let's sit down and read this together and then 
see what it produces. So yeah, there's there's many different ways, but it authorship is always it's always foggy, and I think it's it's getting better how people sort of speak about or credit people perhaps in the creation of work. But even today, I was having a conversation with a friend about ideas and and um, a choreographer feeling as though this friend couldn't work with a particular idea that they had had during this choreographer's process. Um, it's like, where's the line? What do you own? And, and yeah, what are ideas? They come very quickly, but at the same time, perhaps that's the idea. It also kind of comes back to this, you said very early on, everybody's imagining something differently or everybody's interpreting a situation differently. And yeah, how to be clear with that, that authorship, those... Yeah, the choreographer, the dancer, the authors, collaborators. It's, it's tricky territory. Mm. I mean, if I were to... It's generous. It's a generous industry in that way. If I was to sort of find a, an architectural equivalent to that, you know, I just was thinking about um, something I was talking to Ian about on the phone, which was um, the architect of one of the serpentine pavilions in London... Um, Sue Fujimoto talked about, you know, basically two different types of architecture. There's the nest and the cave. And in the nest, you have um, a very specific um, and resolved construction of spaces that provides comfort to the user. And, um, and, a very, and it's a finished object and it's almost one way that it's used, it's guiding um, and nurturing and it leads you to a point of comfort. And then there's the cave type of building, which is almost like a landscape where the user comes in or the occupant comes in and they have to find their own journey and their own place and their own points of comfort. And I mean, and I suppose now with a whole lot of things that come into play, like, um, you know, environmental ideas of, of reusing buildings and things. This cave-type building fits into another um, sort of heading that we call loose-fit buildings, where they can be repurposed over time as the requirements change. You know, they're very um, adaptable. So they're not like the nest. It's a... There's a sort of a loose-fit type thing, and I suppose... You know, in some ways, it's a bit similar to the idea of choreography where there's a very specific idea versus a loose-fit concept that maybe a whole lot of different things come to rest in that space or can happen within that space without one outcome. That wasn't meant to be a killer. No, no, <laughs> sorry. No, it was thinking. just a thought provoker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about how, like, in, in the work that Beck and I make collaboratively, how we work within spaces, but kind of there's something in the work that's very, like, we use every inch of it often. It's, like, really we're, like, beating against the walls and, like, uh, with both the, the work in for the theatre context and also Deep Soulful Swears, there's something about, like, not letting the space restrict the use of the body. Um, and, like, we did a Deep Soulful Sweats here a couple of weeks ago and we had people, like, 
beating against the walls and crawling up there and like running around and like laying on the ground and running over here. And it was like, there was like a hundred people here. It was chaos. It was amazing. Um, and just, at, oh, I was going to say just to explain what Deep Soul oh Sweats yeah. is. Context. <laughs> yeah, it's a, so it's a participatory project. Everybody arrives. Everybody is involved. Nobody is a spectator. We divide everyone into their elements based on their star signs and there's four leaders and each element gets assigned a leader who they follow. Um, they follow for about 40 minutes. Until you get DJ. really tired and you have no inhibitions anymore. <laughs> that happens fairly early on actually, the no inhibitions thing. But yeah, it's, kind of, it's a very sort of accessible project for, for everyone and it kind of sits between... Yeah, process and, and presentation. Mm. Like it's a, a shared experience for people who perhaps don't <laughs> go into dance studios and encounter contemporary dance developments but yeah. get, to <laughs> get to experience something similar as it evolves, live and improvised. Yeah. But yeah, I think it, it, that project is kind of good because it, it allows people to use their bodies within – like when they're, not, they're usually inside spaces but we did one outside but like – people get to encounter the architecture in a really different way and they don't just have to, like, sit on the seating bank. Um, and it's got this, like, sense of ex exploration and play that kind of, I don't know, just that idea of the, the cave and the, the multi-use space. It's like dance can turn any space into that. Like, you can go into the Windsor Hotel and you can do this, like, incredibly physical dance for four hours. But only because... We've been trained to give ourselves the permission to move like that in any space. It's it's actually amazing. We all teach classes at Chunky Move, um, like the public program regularly and also some professional classes, but um, we all teach public beginner classes and it's quite amazing how often people say, oh, it's just so amazing to lie on the floor in a room. <laughs> I do that almost every yeah. room I go into. <laughs> It's almost like not a positive experience for me anymore. <laughs> I'm like cathartic or like just <laughs> crisis point. But um, yeah, yeah, something about, I guess that maybe that's, um, yeah, like what spaces encourage you to do. And how dance can bring you into a more easy relationship with a space, I think, that you don't have to organise your body in, in a way that it's expected to be organised. I think dance is a really nice way of like, softening the edges of architectural spaces if you just move in weird ways. <laughs> softening the protocols of being a... A body? light body. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've run out of time. Mm, I'd, so I, we've, we've got to the end of our hour, people. Crazy. Um, but so I'd really like to thank um, Sarah Cooper from Chunky Move for organising us all here, and um, Sarah and Rebecca for jumping in to fill in for Atlanta Ek 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 Unfillable shoes. But yeah, <laughs> who who unfortunately had a um, family situation she had to deal with. And, of course, to Ian Strange and to Dianne Butterworth. And thank you all for coming out on this Tuesday night in Melbourne. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>